You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, or you can come and join us at one of our live events. Hello, and welcome to this Wavel Room podcast recorded in partnership with War Talks. This podcast features Dr. Pippa Malmgren and is titled Drones, Data and the Democratization of the Airspace. Dr. Malmgren is an American policy analyst. She served as a special assistant to President George W. Bush for economic policy. She is the founder of the DPRM Group, which provides analysis and advice on how economics and geopolitics affect risk and investment. This talk was recorded in Aldershot on the 5th of September, 2019. Enjoy. So today, I want to talk about the democratization of the airspace. Uh, a number of things are happening that I think are going to have extraordinary consequences for strategic security, for intelligence, uh, for the conduct of war in future. So one of them is, throughout, through our history of the human race, it was a very big deal when we mapped latitude. It was a bigger deal when we learned how to map longitude. And you're familiar with the book on the history of longitude. And the discovery of empire was only possible once we put the two together. Today, what drones are doing is they're allowing us to map altitude. And they're allowing us to map below the surface of the water line, the oceans, rivers, lakes, whatever, and below the surface of the earth. And in fact, there's not even a word for this. I'm writing a book right now about the impact of drones. And I've realized we have latitude, longitude, altitude. What do you call from the Earth's surface downward? I have yet to find anyone who can tell me what that word is. So I've had to make one up. And I've made up the word sublitude. It's what's underneath. And what do I mean? What I mean is that you can now use drones to actually see beneath the surface of land. Uh, we're doing some work, for example, um, in the humanitarian space, uh, demining. The ability to see underneath the surface is very valuable in this context. Uh, so if you think that the discovery of latitude and longitude brought historic outcomes, then the mapping of altitude and its sister, sublitude, should equally bring some very dramatic results. Now, when I say mapping altitude, I really mean two things. We're beginning to map from the air, and we're beginning to place objects in the air because we can map it there. So I'll start with the first. The other thing about this space is because drones have been introduced as toys in our generation, we tend not to take them very seriously. But they are not toys, and they are giving us access to aerial views that have never been accessible by regular people ever before. In the past, if you wanted the aerial view, you basically had to be NASA. You had to be a space agency. You had to be a military. You had to be flying a fighter jet or a aircraft on an airline. But now, any kid can acquire a drone and access the aerial view of their immediate environment. So when I say we're democratizing the access to the aerial view, it's in part because of a new development in technology which has 
taken it out of the hands of very big organizations and put it literally into the hands of children. So why does this matter? Well, you can find out a huge amount about an environment and achieve an extraordinary level of situational awareness if you have the aerial view. So in the case of the company that I co-founded, one of the reasons I got into it was because <clears throat> in about the year roughly 2010 to 2012, uh, the Chinese were making the autopilots, the thing that allows this to fly. And they dropped the price of the autopilots by roughly 40-fold in about a two-year period. Now, my business partner, who comes from a financial markets background, said, this is an arbitrage opportunity. We can enter this space at a much lower pricing point. But because I had worked for the president and uh, I was put in charge of terrorism risk to the economy when 9-11 happened, and I learned a lot about um, intelligence in that space. So I looked at it and said, you know, if you want to if you want market share, you might drop the price by 50%, maybe 90%, but a 40-fold decrease, that's something else. Well, fast forward to today. We have a very interesting geopolitical environment between the U.S. and China that you're all well aware of. And the allegation that the Americans are making is that the Chinese um, are using this kind of technology to gather data about everybody else. In other words, the, maybe the purpose of that dramatic price drop was to create what is allegedly the most extraordinary surveillance and reconnaissance system in modern history. Now, there's zero confirmation that this is true. And in fact, some of the Chinese companies have hired external uh, auditors to review this allegation. And consistently, those auditors have said, this is not the case. Your data is not going back to Beijing. But nonetheless, there's still concerns. And it's reached the point that as of last week, the U.S. government has announced that they are invoking the Defense Production Act of 1950 in order to support the development of a drone industry in the U.S. Because of the view that actually, this isn't a toy. This is a means of gathering intelligence about parts of the world that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. Uh, and so this is a very interesting question. In other words, the Huawei issue extends beyond the networks and begins to come into this area of devices um, like drones. So... Let's for a moment, let's play with the idea that you could gather intelligence. What is it that you could gather? Well, if I were running a military, I would find it very useful uh, to fly, to have, I don't even have to fly it myself. I sell it to someone, uh, some kid on a military base. They fly it over the military base, and I had access to that data. Why is that valuable? Well, first of all, you can see where everything is. You begin to get a sense of the movements on a military base. Does this matter? I think it does. I remember uh, when the Indians uh, had their first nuclear test. 
And one of my questions uh, when I was in the White House is, how did we miss it? How did we not know that they were about to do the very first nuclear test? And the answer was because the Indians very cleverly maintained all of the same behaviors that they'd had for like two years in advance of the test so that all the aerial reconnaissance showed there was no change at all in who was doing what on the day. But if you don't have that strategy, the fact is an aerial view does tell you what is changing in the behavior patterns and indicates something is going on. But now we're in a world where there's something else. There's now artificial intelligence. Now, you'll see a lot these days about drones and artificial intelligence. In fact, just this week, there was an interesting article about facial recognition drones. Well, drones don't really do facial recognition. What drones do is they gather data, they take imagery, and then you can run the software over that data, and that AI software can begin to do facial recognition. Now, it's not about recognizing you know, your face or your face. What it's really about is recognizing your emotional state. It's about recognizing, do the people in this location feel confident or nervous? Are they scared? Are they frightened? If you run that over an aerial view of a military base, now you can begin to assess what is the emotional state of my, of my opponent or my target. And so this is the kind of world we're in now where it's the assessment of that aerial information. In a business context, uh, what you can do with the aerial data these days is absolutely discern the value of an agribusiness, a farm. You can absolutely tell the value of a mine. Mines are very interesting because you dig down and you pull dirt out of it. The dirt's in a pile, the aggregate, they call it. The size of that pile is related to the value of the mine because it's always a proportional relationship between how much dirt and is it gold, is it diamonds, is it iron ore? In other words, I can value a mine strictly from the aerial view. Now, we live in a world where there is huge competition for ownership of things like mines. Uh, an issue that keeps coming up in the world of strategic security is China's Belt and Road Initiative, right? China is not able to feed itself. It doesn't have enough arable land. It doesn't have enough water. Uh, it doesn't have the raw materials and resources that are required to serve a population that size. So they've announced the Belt and Road Initiative where they are building highways, um, railway links, ports, airports, physical infrastructure, the world's biggest physical infrastructure commitment. And what is it about? It's about bringing raw materials back into China. Would it be useful to know the value of a soybean farm so that you could bid for ownership of it? Is it would it be valuable to know the, uh, the value of a mine, which has, say, iron ore, which you would need to keep an economy like that going? Arguably, the answer is yes. And so there's a big discussion about what strategic value is there in having these aerial perspectives. Uh, and I think the answer is there is incredible value in it. The commercial sector has recognized this. The defense community, not so much. Uh, and I think that's in part because of a lack of recognition of a bigger phenomena. 
which has to do with data. So this will let me segue into the mapping of altitude. So imagine every Internet of Things device, every data gathering environment. So every time you go to a shopping mall and you pass a camera, every time you buy a pair of shoes that increasingly have chips in the bottom of the shoe, uh, every time you buy clothes these days, increasingly the seams of the clothes have chips that are um, a third of the size of a dimple in a golf ball. And they are all broadcasting where you are. I've talked to clothing companies and they said, yeah, we know exactly where our customers are wearing the favorite sweater. We know which bar they go to on a Thursday. We know exactly what they do on a weekend because we can see from these indicators where they are. So imagine these quadrillions of data points about each one of us. And by the way, the amount of data given off just by the phone in your pocket is not to be underestimated. Even if you don't have any fitness apps, the way you walk, literally the gait of your walk, reveals a huge amount about the health of your heart. Uh, it reveals a huge amount about your physical location as well. Um, more and more, uh, the apps that are on the phone can capture data about you that are an extraordinarily high level of detail. And in fact, now are better indicators of who you are than your thumbprint. The way you walk is a better indicator than your thumbprint. The way you touch or pinch or swipe your screen is a better indicator of you than your thumbprint. So even if you use your friend's phone, it's easy to identify that it's you using the phone. So let's add all of this data up. And now what I'm describing as a world which drones are a part of, contributing to that data acquisition. So imagine those quadrillions of data points all gathering in a kind of invisible or holographic space. It's literally like a crystal ball. It is a place where we are now able to see reality with more precision than you can see reality by looking at it directly. I can have more knowledge and information about you than you have about yourself. In the new environment, companies and governments are having to learn how to navigate in that new space. You know, we've always talked about dimensionality in the past. If I look back in history, we were talking about optics before, the use of optics. What are drones? Drones are just a way of getting lenses into the air, really. That's their sort of core function in terms of data gathering. Well, through the Middle Ages, we had two-dimensional thinking. And you can see that reflected in paintings, right? The paintings are all very flat. There's no three-dimensionality in medieval paintings. And then we invented many new optics, and suddenly all the paintings became three-dimensional. Well, people think they're three-dimensional today. And I know from being in the drone space, because people will say, oh, let me fly that, and they'll grab the controls, and they'll fly it straight into the nearest tree, because actually their spatial awareness is terrible, and they're not very three-dimensional in their thinking. And in fact, they'll always ask me, what do your drones deliver? Which immediately reveals they're thinking in two dimensions, because you pick up a pizza and you drop it off over here. That's it. And when I say, well, actually, we can deliver things, but 
this is about data gathering, they all kind of look like, what does that mean? We don't really get this third dimension. Well, what the third dimension is, is now the ability to capture 3D scans of a physical location, to be able to see in three dimensions on a movable, um, on a movable image that'll be on your phone, exactly the location that you're interested in. But that data goes up into this holographic space I've described, and actually now we begin to enter the fourth dimension. Now, what do we mean by the fourth dimension? Some people feel comfortable with Einstein's definition of the fourth dimension, which is it's a place where time exists. Well, if that's the case, one of the things drones do in conjunction with a lot of this other data is it allows you to go back in time and see exactly what happened when. Not sort of what happened when, but exactly. This can fly over, for example, an accident site and digitally lift the accident site with precision down to, we do down to one centimeter, but these days you can go lower than that. So now, when you have an accident on a highway, you lift the entire accident scene digitally, it's immediately with the forensics lab, you can clean up the accident much more rapidly. Okay, but now if you were to take that same kind of aerial view, you could actually begin to see how did the accident unfold over time. And if we add in now, if I had access to all the data of the drivers, I would be able to see what were the purchasing patterns for the 24 hours before the accident happened. If, I'm, if they are in cars that have sensors, which they all do these days, you'll be able to hear the argument between the spouses that was occurring when the accident happened. You will be able to see that the person was drinking the night before at a bar because Google and MasterCard have a deal. And so anything you buy on your MasterCard, Google knows exactly what you bought. Uh, you will literally be able to create uh, a, a control in the sense over time that we've never had before, that you can see exactly what happened in the past. And all of that data also lets you project into the future. So your ability to start doing probabilistic understanding of what's likely to happen is vastly improved by that data environment. But that's not the only way to think about the fourth dimension. Um, traditionally, humans have liked thinking about it as a place where you have ghosts and spirits and the paranormal. And in a way, this is exactly what is happening because this business of digitally capturing all of us, every person, every place, everything, every motion, and every emotion, all of that is creating a digital twin. There's a digital twin of me that already exists in this space. And decisions are made about that digital twin that I have no knowledge of. As an example, banks already in the United Kingdom use, they buy these data streams that I've described. They use artificial intelligence to connect the dots between these data streams. And what they see uh, is perhaps a husband and wife. And what they see is the husband's purchasing patterns indicate that he's buying stuff that doesn't seem to fit with who the wife is and is in a different location. And the wife seems to be doing things that don't fit with. And what the bank sees is the algorithm says a divorce is coming in this household. 
And what they do is drag down the credit limit of the lower earning partner in anticipation of the coming divorce. In other words, the bank and this crystal ball environment know you're going to get divorced before you know you're going to get divorced. This is an entirely new operating environment. Now, from a military strategic point of view, if I can buy all that data, what can I tell about what a military is about to do? And the answer is a lot. It wasn't that many months ago that actually the British military discovered that the officers or the, the staff wearing the equivalent of a Fitbit were giving away their forward location and that because the morning run was recorded and on the open internet. The fact is, all these Internet of Things devices or data gathering devices are mostly run by companies that make their money out of selling that data. As another example, um, you know, I, I served, as you said, um, for my sins, uh, advising the British government over the last three years on trade policy during this very extraordinary moment in history. And I just thought so interesting that we talk about we're going to lock down all the documents, right? Because it's such a high security environment. It's such a sensitive issue. And I said, excuse me, what about when we go home? And I was like, what? I said, well, you go home and now your refrigerator, your vacuum cleaner, your rubbish bin, your beds. By the way, beds with sensors are the single most popular Internet of Things device right now. So what do you think is happening to all that information? It is sold on the Internet. So the fact is you go home and you say, hi, honey, the prime minister's called an emergency meeting. I got to get down to parliament. But you don't think that someone's able to purchase this even if you don't say it out loud, the movement of your car, where your car is, is revealing that you've gone from home down to parliament. Are they having an emergency meeting? It sure looks like it. So drones are part of this phenomena. So now let me come to the altitude uh, aspect, because it's not just that now you'll be able to map the world with an extraordinary degree of precision. And I think from a military point of view, being able to see exactly the three-dimensional space of somewhere that you're about to be involved with is very valuable. But now, in addition, you'll be able to place objects in altitude. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, in this data-driven world that I've described, imagine... Uh, I will know if I have access to the right data. I know exactly where you are sleeping. It's very easy because there's a barometric pressure monitor in your phone. So it's very clear which floor of a building are you on? What exactly is your precise location? And since you're there in that spot pretty much most nights from, say, 11 p.m. to, I don't know, whatever you get up, I can guess this is where you're in bed. Okay, so now I can take a digital object, like if I'm Coca-Cola and I want to advertise Coca-Cola to you, I can create a digital augmented reality Coca-Cola bottle and I can place it right at the foot of your bed. Now, you can't see it unless you have an app on your phone, but this is coming that everybody is going to learn how to use their phone to see augmented reality. Uh, glasses have just been introduced, VR glasses, just this last week that for the first time are truly wireless. 
So now in this room, we could have a multitude of digital objects all around us. Signals, maps, messages, advertisements, all kinds of things. But you will only be able to see them if you have access to the network that they're on. Well, in the conduct of war, the sending of messages, the, you know, how do you send a map to somebody? Well, this is a whole new way of doing it. And I don't think we've put a lot of thought into this new environment. Um, so when I say we're mapping altitude and we're mapping from altitude to be able to have a very precise three-dimensional view of a location, but in addition, you can capture the emotional state of the people in that location. You can now know through facial recognition what is the actual emotional state of those folks. And now you can place digital objects in their environment. This is a whole different way of thinking about the world that we live in. And I think there's many positive things that we can do with that kind of command. There are many not so positive things that we can do. But one thing is sure, now this has become a strategic security issue, which is why the US is um, making such a big noise about particularly the drone space. Uh, and therefore it's sort of worth thinking about that. Um, I think in addition, I might spend just a couple of minutes uh, speaking about the toys migrating into something more serious. In the defense community, you tend to think of drones as the predator drones. Um, and I should remind you, the predator drone was built by one guy in his backyard. One guy. And he's quite famous and he's, well, nobody knows how rich he is because he's not allowed to say how many he sold. But let's just say he might be one of the richest people around. This has enormous implications for military procurement. We are living in an era where you cannot make a distinction anymore between what is civilian technology and what is military technology. I mean, this whole concept of dual use is meaningless in this environment. If you can build a predator drone by yourself in your backyard, people can build stuff. So I am in the space of building things. Now in my company, we made a decision we're only selling to corporations and to official government entities. We don't sell to individuals because these things are dangerous and we think a lot of bad things could happen with them. So we only sell to companies that have a particular use, particular need. But the fact is that drone technology is out there. Again, in the last week or so, there was this fantastic um, article that was all over Twitter. Some guy in East Africa had created a drone out of bamboo. And so now he has access to the aerial view. Uh, this is the democratization of the airspace. So this idea that they can make a controlled technology or that uh, you need a big defense company to produce this, it's just not true anymore. So that's then an interesting question for the defense community is how to use it, how to access it. And I think it's symbolic of a much bigger issue, which is military procurement process. Now, another issue I had when I was in the White House was um, I was in charge of uh, the 
issue of small business procurement by the Pentagon. Now that made me the most unpopular person at the Pentagon because nobody wanted to procure from small companies, right? They like working with the really big defense companies. So much easier to deal with Lockheed. We already know who the people are. Yes, but the cost base and the innovation level are very different. And the fact is we're in a period of history of truly extraordinary innovation, which is mainly happening in small companies. Usually innovation does happen in the smaller companies rather than the big ones. So do you have a military procurement strategy that leaves you still reliant on extremely expensive production processes that don't capture the newest technologies? I think the answer is yes. Do you have any way to access what is happening at the new innovative end of the spectrum? I think militaries are getting better at that, but still they're very nervous. And why are they nervous? Because they're afraid of making a mistake. And we talked about this a little bit earlier that um, new technologies, some of them will fail. Lots of drone companies have failed. But does that mean that there's no innovation? Does it mean that there isn't any innovation that's useful in a strategic security context? No, it is. So the question is how to improve the risk tolerance of the defense and strategic security community so they don't feel like they can't take a risk on a new technology because if I get it wrong, it'll mess my career up. And this is a problem. I think it's, a, it's an issue across, uh, well, it's, it's an issue across the board. So I think the way to think about drones then is in this broader context. The fact that they have been introduced as toys in recent years has a little bit blinded everyone to the fact that something much bigger is happening here. And like I said, if mapping latitude and longitude brought extraordinary historic outcomes, mapping altitude is now going to do that too. And being able to see under the surface of the water, under the surface of the oceans, under the surface of the ground below the oceans, drones increasingly will be doing this. I also think there's going to be a, a what they call hyperconvergence of geospatial satellite data with drone data so that you get highly accurate understanding of locations from space, but match it up with much more granular local understanding of what's happening on the ground. Uh, in the British military and the American military, there's been a big focus on the very, very small drones, and that's because they want to uh, equip um, soldiers uh, with something they can use and they carry on their person. Um, you will know better than I that soldiers are these days carrying more weight than a medieval soldier, a medieval knight. Uh, so, you know, there's only, there's a limit to how much you can actually carry. Uh, but I think that the use of drones for things like supplying the last mile uh, for reconnaissance purposes, this has not yet really been such a big focus. Again, that's why the Americans just announced this Defense Production Act, because they want to create a domestic manufacturing production capability because everything got moved in recent decades to China. I'll finish, by the way, just by saying on that front, one of the interesting phenomena in the background is China's actually become rather expensive. Their wages have been rising. Their quality control has not been great. 
Uh, and as a result, we're watching a relocalization of production. So this view that Britain doesn't have any manufacturing and America doesn't have any manufacturing isn't true anymore. And actually, there's some extraordinary manufacturing of this kind of high-end engineered data gathering products happening in the West now. But perhaps the military strategy is still based on the assumption that we don't have any of this here. Therefore, we can't input into what is it we need. And I think that's worthy of a little bit of thought. Um, instead of buying things that have been built for you and it's a take it or leave it, what kind of input do you want into the kind of data that can be gathered? That's a whole different thought process. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going, keep creating the content that we know.